0: invite you to turn in your Bible again this morning to the book of Job, and this morning we're looking at Job chapter 31. Job chapter 31, uh, where we have Job's uh, final speech, it begins in chapter 29 and concludes in chapter 31. This morning uh, we'll be looking... uh, Particularly at chapter 31, Job's final appeal. Let's pick it up at uh, verse 1, chapter 31. Job is speaking to his friends, but primarily to God. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the works of iniquity? Does not He see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity." If my step has turned aside from the way, and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat, and let what grows for me be rooted out. If my heart has been enticed toward a woman, and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another, and let others bow down on her. For that would be a heinous crime. That would be an iniquity. To be punished by the judges, for that would be a fire that consumes as far as Abaddon, and it would burn to the root all my increase. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes an inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? If I have withheld anything that the poor desired or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless has not eaten of it. For from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as with with a father and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, If I have raised my hand against the fatherless, because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder, and let my arm be broken from its socket. For I was in terror of calamity from God, and I could not have faced His majesty. If I have made gold my trust, or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant, or because my hand had found much... If I had looked at the sun when it shone, or the moon moving in splendor, and my heart had been secretly enticed, and my mouth had kissed my hand, that this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. If I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me, or exalted when evil overtook him, I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. If the men of my tent have not said, Who is there that has not been filled with his meat? The sojourner has not lodged in the street. I have opened my doors to the traveler. If I have concealed my transgressions as others do, by hiding my iniquity in my heart, because I stood in great fear of the multitude and the contempt of families terrified me so that I kept silence and did not go out of doors. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature, let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary, surely I would carry it on my shoulder, I would bind it on me as a crown, I would give him an account of all my steps, like a prince, I would approach him. If my land has cried out against me and its furrows have wept together, if I've eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this word. We ask your spirit now to come and speak it to our heart that we might see the glory of God in Christ and your calling on our life. And Lord, that you, your word today would be um, food for our soul and a transforming power that would make us more uh, in love with Christ and committed to, to following after him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> the title of my message this morning is Job's Final Appeal. In chapter 31, 29 through 31, we come to uh, the last of Job's speeches. Uh, Job believes that he is dying. We've noted that before. And this is the last thing he wants to say. It's the last thing, in a sense, he has to say. He'll have one more short uh, response to God. But, but this, is, uh, this is the last thing that Job wants uh, to be heard before he goes to Sheol, to the grave. Uh, last words are meaningful words. They, they can re- reveal a great deal about a, a person, about their, their hope, about their, uh, what they're thinking as they're approaching death. Uh, Frank Sinatra's last words, as you might know, is, uh, I'm losing, I'm losing. Uh, J. Gresham Machen, on the other hand, last words were sent in a telegraph to his friend John Murray, and it said this, so thankful for the act of obedience of Christ No hope without it. Well, as we followed Job through uh, his deep trauma, we've seen him wrestling with three painful realities. Uh, We've seen him wrestle with the agony of his devastating circumstances. He lost everything, including his ten children. We've seen him wrestle with the accusations of his uh, miserable friends, the false accusations of his friends. But most um, critically and painfully, we've seen Job wrestle with the silence and seeming injustice of God. Uh, This is the thing that breaks Job's heart more than all the others. In fact, Job, uh, in his last speech, if you have your Bible, just flip back one chapter, chapter 30, and we'll see that Job charges God with being cruel and uncaring. Look at verse 20 of chapter 30. Verse 20, I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. Job is saying, God, you have no care whatsoever for the grief and the uh, the devastation of my life. Though God has caused it, God has seemed, now seems cruel and uncaring. These are the things that Job has come to believe about God. And who could blame him? Right? You could could say from a human perspective, this makes total sense why Job would charge God with these things. Uh, God... Um, why has God allowed these things to happen? And why hasn't God rushed to his help, rushed to his rescue? What loving parent would, would simply stand and watch while their child was in excruciating pain? You would say, well, only a, a, a callous, um, evil parent who has no concern for their child. And God seems to Job to be that that callous, uncaring parent. You see, Job in in his former life had believed that God was a refuge for those who trusted in him. But Job had trusted in him. And he found that God was not a refuge at all. God was a tornado. God devastated his life. And most impenetratingly, uh, God did all this though Job had not sinned. He was an innocent man. He didn't deserve it. God was persecuting the righteous. God was. And so God seems guilty of injustice. And so Job in his final speech He's not merely making a defense of his own innocence, but he's it's a direct challenge to God. He's putting his defense down on paper and filing it with the court of heaven, seeking to force God to respond. Belcher in his commentary says Job's purchase, purpose is to give God no option but to answer him. He's going to try to force the hand of God. He's putting God in the dock. And if God does not respond, Job will treat his silence as evidence that he, Job, is in the right, that he has been vindicated. And so to that end, Job details the righteousness of his life. That's what we have in chapter 31, Job's defense. First, notice Job outlines what he didn't do. It's clear that Job is a man who thought very carefully about what godliness looks like, what righteousness requires. And he thought about this in every area and every aspect of his life, his thought life, his sexual life, his relationship to his servants, his relationship to the poor, his relationship to his enemies, his attitude towards them. I mean, in every aspect of his life, Job had considered what godliness meant, what righteousness required. And, And Job gives us a list in this chapter of all the things that he has not done. So we don't have time to go through them all, but but he, he mentions lust, verses one through four, lying, verses five through six, coveting, seven through eight, adultery, nine through twelve, injustice to servants, thirteen through fifteen, lack of generosity to the poor, sixteen through twenty, violence against the defenseless, twenty-one through twenty-three, trust in wealth, twenty-four through twenty-five, idolatry, Worshiping the heavenly bodies. He says, "When when I kiss my hand, it's blowing a kiss to the moon and the sun. That's 26 through 28. Vindictiveness towards his enemies, 29 and 30. Concealing his own sin, 33 through 34. Abusing the land, 38 through 40. Job is just going through his whole life. All of his relationships... All of the, just what makes up a person's life in this world. And he has carefully pursued righteousness in all of those areas. One of the things that's fascinating about this chapter is how Job is, how thoroughly he understands the scope and nature of sin. That it's not just external acts, it's also internal attitudes, right? If, if I had in my heart um, delighted when my enemy suffered it's such a secret thing. Who would know? Or, or secretly in his thoughts, he, he gazed on a, a virgin and lusted after her. But how does, how does Job know? That this is hundreds of years before the law is given uh, to Moses. How does Job know that all these things are sinful? And the answer, of course, is because God has written his law in the conscience of people men and women made in his image. Everybody knows these things are sinful. Everyone, as Job was writing this, no one would be reading that and saying, really, that's a sin? I didn't know that was a sin. They would recognize it as sin because God has written this on the hearts of men and women. But you see, most people choose to ignore their conscience, at least when it's convenient, in order to serve their desires. That's just how life works for them. Um, Job does just the opposite. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? At a virgin, a, a covenant is a legal oath with stipulations and penalties. I mean, Job has, has been very serious about uh, swearing, making swearing an oath to himself that he will not gaze at a woman uh, with lust in his heart when he sees an attractive woman. He's not going to feed on her beauty. He's not going to desire her for sexual pleasure. He's not going to fantasize. You see, it's a a covenant that he makes with his heart as much as with his eyes. Now, it's intriguing to me that he starts with this. Why would you start your legal defense before God with this? I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look and gaze at a virgin? Well, I think it's because it's the most easily excused sin of men. You see, every man is attempted to look at attractive women and, and freely does. We notice, and, and men easily, you see, say, well, uh, I'm just, you know, it's just looking and you, you notice her attractiveness and her sexual attractiveness. And, uh, and, and men consider their impure thoughts. And women will, can do the same. But the impure thoughts don't seem wrong. It seems as normal as breathing. It's just, it's just how people live. It's no big deal. But to Job it was a big deal. The way he looks at women is a big deal to Job. And that, that concern, that deep penetrating concern for righteousness in every aspect of his life, that's what you see through his defense. He begins here because it's, it's just the most maybe easy to grasp evidence of the integrity that saturates his entire life. Secondly, Job notes throughout his defense his willingness to be punished if he's guilty. This is not a guy that's trying to escape the penalty of his crimes. He's willing to accept the penalty. For uh, any punishment that's appropriate to the sin, Job is willing to accept if he's committed the sin. So verse 5, he speaks of the consequences of lying. If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, then in verse 8, then let me sow and another eat and let what grows for me be rooted out. So just bankrupt me. If, that's, if that was my life, bankrupt me. In verse 9, he speaks about uh, adultery. If, I, if my heart has been enticed toward a woman and I've lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down on her. That would be a just consequence For his own adultery. That some other man come in and steal his wife. You see Job. And that same thread goes all the way through. If if I've done this. Then that. Whatever the, the appropriate punishment is. Job says I'm willing to accept it. I'm willing to suffer the penalties. If I've committed the crime. But I haven't committed the crime. I'm not guilty. Of these things. And yet the penalties have all come down. That's his charge. That's his his frustration. That's his grief. That's his case. I've I've not done the crime. And yet I'm receiving the penalty. And to make this maybe... The most frustrating, maybe even infuriating aspect of this, the most confounding part about this is that the life that he lived was not just a Job, Mr. Self-righteous. It was Job earnestly seeking to obey and honor and reverence God. He did this for God's sake, for God's glory, for God's name. His moral life was a godly life. And you see that again all the way through his defense. The primary reason he made a covenant with his eyes not to gaze lustfully at a woman is found in verse 2 and verse 4. What would my portion from God above, what would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Verse 4, does not he that is God see my ways? and number all my steps. You see, the reason that that it seemed to Job that it was simply not permissible to to secretly lust after an attractive woman is because God sees His thoughts. God knows His ways. And God repays. What, What would be my portion from God if I did that? You have the same thing, verse 13 through 14, concerning His treatment of His servants if I've rejected the, the cause of my manservant or maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? That, that's a really good question. I mean, you just sense Job lives with a deep sense of the presence of God. He lives coram dale, before the face of God. So, so if, if he's tempted to mistreat a servant, he thinks, well what would it be like when God rises up and and God says to me, Job, why are you mistreating your servants? What will I say? That's a good question to to ask as you deal with people. Why Why do you treat your wife that way? God will ask. God will ask, you see, why, why do you treat your friend that way? Why do you treat your parents that way? Why do you do that? What will you say? Are the justifications that you so easily give to yourself? Is that going to work before God? Will, will that work? Will you be, be able to say to God, well, um, you know, my wife w- was late again. And so I just poured out the, the, the venom of my self-righteous anger and indignation and, and it was, it was well-deserved. Will, will that work before God, on, when God rises up? Boys and girls, when God says, why, why did you disobey your parents? What, what will you say? This is a very good question. It's a very searching question. Job is deeply conscious of the presence of, of God and the fact that He will stand before God and give an account for His actions. You see, what people would say in that case, for mis- if, if you ask a wealthy, rich uh, a landowner, why are you mistreating His servants? He would say, well, because they're my servants. I'm over them, they're under me. I have a right to demand that they do what I want them to do to get what I want. Well, that's not how Job would think. Verse 15 Did not He who made me in the womb make them? Did not one fashion us in the womb? Now, Job sees a fundamental uh, parity in unity, equality among people. We're all made in the image of God, and we're all going to answer to God, every one of us. And so, you see, um, Job doesn't think like a normal, wealthy landowner. He doesn't say, well, you know, I can treat my people like I want. What could they possibly do to me? He doesn't think that. It's not the issue, what they could do to him. The issue is what God could do to him. And that concerns him deeply. To abuse those created by God in his own image would bring the wrath of God on his own head. And so Job, fearing God, shuns the evil. And his fear of God is is both a love, a desire to please and to honor, and, and, and there's also, it's mixed with this respect bordering on terror. Look at verse 23. Why did he commit himself to showing mercy to the fatherless and even grace to his enemies? He tells you in verse 23. For I was in terror of calamity from God and I could not have faced his majesty. So Job is a man who's lived his life with this profound sense of the presence of the living, thrice holy God. That God cares what he thinks and and sees what he does. That has directed Job's life. He's lived a God-conscious life. And that, you see, is the devastating irony of his suffering. Job diligently, you see, pursued obedience in every area of his life because he was in terror of the calamity from God. And what did he get for all of his troubles? What did he receive for all of his efforts? Calamity from God. To an extent he never would have imagined was possible. That's what he got. And that's his frustration. That's his anger, you you could say. That just boils up within him, the injustice of it, the confounding nature of it. This is not how it ought to be. And so he needs to hear from God. And so he lays out the evidence of his life as grounds for his defense He can honestly say he's not done these things. He does not claim to be sinless. But he says, verse 33, when I sinned, I confessed. And you remember back in chapter 1, not only did Job confess his own sin, he would confess the sins of his children, the potential possible sins of his children. He would consecrate them, each one of them after their feast, in fear that maybe perhaps they had somehow in their heart cursed God. That's how sensitive he was. And his case, his argument is, therefore, being the man he was, he should not be suffering the judgment of God. He's absolutely confident that if God, the heavenly judge, would just take a look at his case, would just take up his case, look at the evidence... Job would be declared innocent. Verse 6, let me be weighed in a just balance. Put me on the scale. And let God know my integrity. I will not be weighed in the balance and found wanting. There will be integrity. God will see my integrity. In verse 35 and 36, he signs his name to his defense and officially places it before the divine court. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. That's pretty bold. That's very bold. Job is putting God on the dock. Let the Almighty answer me. It's time for God to speak up. And if he will not, then Job will proudly take God's silence as evidence that Job is right and God is wrong. It'll be his vindication. Ash says, Job has run out of patience. He says, at last I laid down my final case for the defense, I append my signature, and I challenge the Almighty, no less, to answer me. If I am guilty, then I challenge him to punish me as I deserve. And if he does not, then I will be declared righteous by default. For if an opponent is silenced and remains silent, he is defeated in court. And now the words of Job are ended. He's done talking. He's done arguing with his foolish friends and their foolish false accusations. He's done trying to get God to answer, respond to him. He's made his case. He's pressed his charge. The ball is in God's court. If Job has sinned, he's willing to pay the consequences. But he is not willing to silently accept the false accusations of of his friends. He is not willing to meekly accept Penalties for crimes he has not done. He is not willing to be treated as a grievous sinner when he knows he isn't one. He's not willing. Well, what are we to make of this text? Well, first of all, We need to realize that Job is not a hypocrite when he's talking about his life. He really was the most godly man in the world. God says to Satan, there is no one else like him. He really was a man of profound moral integrity and righteousness. His life is a vivid display of what godliness and righteousness looks like. So we think about Proverbs 31. That's the picture of the virtuous woman. Well, Job 31 is the picture of the righteous man. This is what it looks like. To live before God. To live quorum deo. This is what it looks like. And so Job is not being a hypocrite. He's speaking truth. Secondly, Job's life is a reminder of the necessity for holiness. For those who profess to believe in God. You see, his righteousness is noteworthy. Precisely because it is evidence of his devotion to God. His faith in God. His desire to honor God. It's the evidence you see. Of Job's genuine relationship with his God. Kevin DeYoung says in his book, Whole in Our Holiness, we must always remember that in seeking after holiness, we are not so much seeking after a thing as we are seeking a person. To run hard after holiness is just another way of running hard after God. That's exactly right. And that's how Job lived. And that is a necessity for New Testament Christians as well. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He meant it. The writer of Hebrews tells the readers to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's chapter 12, 14. To strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The apostle John says, whoever says that he knows God but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. 2 verse 4. And again in chapter 229. Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Practicing righteousness in the mind of the Apostle John by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is the evidence of regeneration. That you've been born again. That you're born anew. R.C. Sproul wrote, Righteousness is the goal of Christian discipleship. He says, In the Christian world today, such a statement may sound radical. Many people have spoken to me about being ethical, moral, spiritual, or even pious, but nobody seems to want to talk about being righteous. It sounds a little odd, doesn't it? If if, if someone says, How could I pray for you?" you? And you would say, just pray that I would be more righteous. It's not a language we use. They might look at you funny. Well, just point them to John 2, 29. I just want there to be evidence in my life that I've been born again, that, that, that I really do belong to God. I am hungry to practice righteousness. J.C. Ryle, in his book entitled Holiness, A collection of sermons, he says this. He says, It will be utterly useless on the last day to plead that we believed in Christ unless our faith has had some sanctifying effect in our lives. He says, The question will not be how we talked or what we professed, but how we lived and what we did. There needs to be evidence, Raoul says. It's what the Bible says. Paul says, don't be be deceived. You could say you believe in Christ, but the sexually immoral, the thief, the idolater, they're they're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Holiness is necessary. Of course, we're not justified by our works, We're not saved by our holiness, our obedience. We are undoubtedly and gloriously saved by faith alone, in uh, in Christ alone. And and we trust that that, that, um, Jesus Christ saves us as a free gift. It's not merited by our works. But you see, the faith that saves alone, the true faith that saves alone will never be alone. The Holy Spirit who works that faith, the Holy Spirit who regenerates the, the, the heart of a dead a, a sinner, the dead heart of a sinner, the Holy Spirit who does that miracle of regeneration will also do the miracle of sanctification. He never does the one without the other. And so if you, if you see a person who has no evidence of the miracle of sanctification, well, you have no reason to believe they've experienced the miracle of Regeneration. They must be born again. Faith without works is dead. And so Job's righteous life is it's just a wonderful sort of mark for us. This is what righteousness looks like. This is what it looks like to follow Christ. This sort of seriousness in every aspect, every area of your life. What is the will of God? Paul says, find out, right? Know what his will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will is. Job's righteous life is proof of his living faith, and our lives should be the same. But finally, while Job's faith and the righteousness that flows from his faith is a great example to us and for us. His life is not just an example. We've said this before. Job's life has this unique character to it. That he is a prophetic foreshadowing of someone who is yet to come. And so Job's unique obedience points forward to the unique obedience of one who is yet to come. Who would not simply match Job, but far surpass him. Someone who would never commit any sin whatsoever, not in his thoughts, not in his motives, his attitudes, his words, his actions, one who in every single way would honor God. Job points to him. In his unique suffering as an innocent man, in his unique suffering as an innocent man, Job points forward to someone who. Will suffer as an innocent man. But there is one vast difference between Job and Christ. As we said, Job was not willing to silently sit there while he was falsely accused, he was not willing to bear the penalty for crimes he had not committed. He was not willing to suffer the punishment due to grievous sinners when he knew he wasn't one. Job would be damned if he would sit there and accept that sort of abuse. Jesus was damned because he was willing. He was willing to be falsely accused. He was willing to bear the penalty for crimes he had not done. He was willing to silently suffer the punishment due a grievous sinner when he wasn't one. Though he was God himself in flesh. And without any sin. He was willing to go to the cross in our place bearing our sin. Why? Because it was his father's will. And because he loved us. Not my will but yours be done. That's the speech Job should have given. And he will be rebuked by Elihu and by God himself. Jesus never gave this speech, did he? though he could have spoken it vastly more truly than Job ever could. Jesus was willing to endure what Job was not willing to endure. And friends, in the end, that is our final appeal. You see, we are saved by faith, and faith must bear the fruit of righteousness. There there has to be evidence of growth. Of a, of a tender heart towards God, a deepening grief over sin, a, an ability to, to forgive and to grow in grace the fruits of the Spirit that, that, that must be there to verify the, the truth of our regeneration. But when we stand before the court of God in heaven, our final appeal will not be our righteousness, but His. And we will thank the Lord for all the victories that God has won in our life, but our confidence will be in the victory that Jesus won with his life. That's our confidence. We'll praise God for all the temptations that we overcame for his glory, but our, our hope will be in all the temptations that Jesus overcame for our sake. Jesus is our final appeal. Jesus is the final appeal for sinners. And sufficiently so. So as Machen so eloquently said, so thankful for the act of obedience of Jesus Christ. No hope without it. And all hope with it. All hope with it. We sin grievously, and yet Jesus Christ saves magnificently. He is our hope. Is it yours? Is this your confidence when you stand before God in that last day? If so, the Apostle John will say, First John three three. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And so, if you hope in Jesus, if he's your final appeal, then you love him and you want to be like him. And you're going to go to war with yourself. You're going to face your flesh. You're going to face the world. You're going to face the devil. You're going to feel uh, defeated many times. Uh, There might even be times where you despair. But because Jesus, you see, is your final appeal. Because Jesus is your rock-bottom confidence and hope. Because his, his obedient life is your righteousness. You are now free to fight. You are free to engage the war. Believing that the God who called you will also be at work sanctifying you. And it's hard, and it's long, and it's bloody, but it, in the end, is always successful. So fight, friends, for righteousness in the peace of God, in the confidence that Jesus Christ is your appeal by faith alone. Amen. Well, God in heaven, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that you've purchased us With your blood, Lord Jesus, we thank you that your righteousness has been made ours as a free gift. And now, O God, you are at work by your spirit to work righteousness in us. That our, that our life is being more and more conformed to the will of God. Oh God, I just pray for your saints who are struggling today with, with, with despair with, uh, because of uh, ongoing besetting sins that seem just to, to conquer and triumph in their life. Lord, I just pray that we'd be a people who are on our knees before you in, re, in confession and then, uh, Lord, walking out repentance with our brothers and sisters, asking for help, humbling ourselves. Not hiding our sin for fear of people, but Lord, doing all that we know to do by your spirit and word, to live in your grace and to walk in your truth, walking by the spirit of God, so that and Lord, paying attention to the, the 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 little things, the the secret thoughts and uh, and actions and attitudes and motives of our heart and and confessing those. And, and oh, God, I pray that we would see you do a beautiful work and that we would engage this battle with the confidence that one day it will be perfected and we will be presented without spot and great joy before the throne of God in heaven. Oh, Father, do your work. In Jesus' name, amen.